Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another week here on Covenant Network. You are listening to Roadmap to Heaven this morning. It is good to be with you today. I'm Adam Wright. Let us begin our day as we always do in prayer. And we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your Sacred Heart in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world, in reparation for my sins, for the intentions of all my relatives and friends, and in particular for the intentions of the Holy Father. Amen. We dedicate all of our thoughts, words, and actions to the greater glory of God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is so good to be with you this Monday morning. Um, Despite the weather this morning, I know some of our listeners in the southern parts of our viewing area in Missouri, viewing area, it's the radio. I mean, you might be looking at your radio, but in our listening area in southern Missouri have been dealing with some severe weather this morning. Um, And so our thoughts go out to you, and we hope you're safe this morning. That's the number one thing. We hope you're safe. We pray that you are safe. My kids were asking, Dad, why does it have to rain? And I told them, I said, it's God's way of refreshing the earth. And look at all the beautiful colors of the trees. I mean, even as the rain was letting up as I drove into the studio this morning, the purples and the pinks of the flowers that are starting to bud on the trees are absolutely wonderful. And I mean absolutely wonderful. I am just so grateful to experience the beauty of God's creation today. But as easy as it would be to focus on that, we actually have uh, we have a lot going on this week. It's Holy Week. It began yesterday with Palm Sunday. It goes through, you know, Lent officially ends Thursday evening with the beginning of the Sacred Paschal Triduum. And then we celebrate the Sacred Paschal Triduum. And then we have Easter on Sunday, really beginning with the vigil Saturday night, uh, but liturgically at that point, it becomes Sunday. And what a what a glorious thing, what a joyous thing. But on that path, on this journey of Holy Week, as we heard yesterday in the Gospel, we go from that triumphant entry into Jerusalem to the way of the cross. We cannot get to the resurrection without walking the way of the cross this week. And so we prepare to suffer with our Lord. We prepare to die to self just as he offered his life For our sake, we die to our desires of anything that pulls us away from him. So if you're struggling with gluttony and you're reaching for the donuts this morning, you know, we we die to self. We don't reach for the donuts. If you drink too much on occasion, we don't reach for the drink this week. If you, you know, we, we go to those ones often because those are easy examples. But I would say this, if you struggle with gossip, especially this week, Mind your tongue. We heard at the beginning of Lent from Father Wade Menezes on the importance of minding our tongue and the power of our words and why Lent is a great time to work on that. But especially this week, I don't care if you have to stop yourself mid-sentence. I don't care if I have to stop myself mid-sentence. We should be very, very mindful of our words because with each and every sin, we unite ourselves with the crowds who would say, crucify him, crucify him. I know that was always a very awkward thing for a friend of mine in college on Palm Sunday. She really would be uncomfortable with saying that, you know, when it would come to the crowd portion of the Passion. 
And we would say as the assembly gathered in the church, as the congregation, crucify him, crucify him. And, you know, it, it's a really weird thing to say that because we, we don't want to see, because we love Jesus, we don't want to see him crucified. And yet, and yet it was his crucifixion that has done so much for us. So on the show today, so much for us, redemption, salvation. I make it sound understated there. On the show today, we're going to be hearing from John Martinoni. You might, if you go to the Easter Vigil, you might say, well, wait a minute, there are two creation stories in the book of Genesis. And why is that? Why are there two? And, and some would say, John, what's going on there? So John's going to break that open for us. And then we're also going to hear um, some words about reparation for sin, a very important reminder for us in this Holy Week. And then finally, uh, we're going to visit with Patty Schneier, who's going to share some of her experiences on the Via Dolorosa, on the way of the cross with us. Patty's been to the Holy Land, and she's going to share that with us today. I would remind you as well that Patty's going to be with us Friday morning for our Good Friday special uh, that we have every year, a more somber reflection. Um, it will take the whole hour and devote it to Good Friday. This coming Thursday, we're also going to be pleased to be broadcasting from the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis before the Chrism Mass and then bringing you the Chrism Mass live on our airwaves. So that's all these things that we have going this week. But first, before we can get to any of that, let's go to Mike Roberts for a check of the weather. Today is the feast day of St. Stanislaus, Bishop of Krakow and Martyr. Born in Poland in 1030, he was the only son of a nobleman and educated at the cathedral school in the capital, then sent to Paris to finish his studies. Upon his return, he was ordained as a priest by the Bishop of Krakow, and when he died, Stanislaus was elected to replace him. But soon, he found himself at odds with the king, Boleslaw. A man named Peter had dedicated some of his land to the church after his death, but when he died, his sons wanted the land. The case was referred to the king, who ruled in favor of the sons. Stanislaus asked the king for three days to produce the deceased Peter as a witness. The king and his court found great humor in the request and granted it. Stanislaus prayed continuously for three days, then went to Peter's gravesite, called him to rise, and he did. He then took Peter before the king, his court, and his sons, where Peter rebuked his sons and testified before a shocked king, Boleslaw, that the land should go to the church. Several years later, when war broke out, the king's troops were off fighting when they were informed that their overseers were taking over their property and their wives with no apparent opposition from the king. Stanislaus condemned these actions and the immoral behavior of all, especially King Boleslaw, and ultimately excommunicated the king. Enraged, the king sent his guards to kill Stanislaus. When they would not do that, he did it himself, slaying him as he was saying mass. His subjects were outraged and forced Boleslaw from his throne and into exile in Hungary. Stanislaus died on this day in 1079 at the age of 48. St. Stanislaus, please pray for us. I'm meteorologist Mike Roberts for Covenant Network. Have a blessed day. We are back. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven. And once again, we are happy to be joined by John Martinoni, founder and president of the Bible Christian Society, to help us debunk and understand the common errors we might encounter when we go out trying to interpret Scripture on our own. Now, John, I love 
a good rivalry. I, you know, I'm a Cardinals fan here in St. Louis. Cardinals, Cubs, Blues, Blackhawks. Uh, you know, beyond sports, we have competitions. Who's got the best sandwich shop here in town? And and I love a good rivalry. And yet, right at the beginning of the Bible, I don't have to go very far to find a good rivalry. We've got two accounts of creation: Genesis one. In Genesis 2. So today on our segment with you, we're going to look at the contradiction in these creation stories and say, well, hold on, John. If, if the Bible is something that we're called to believe in, how can the Bible contradict itself with these two stories? So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here to help us understand John Martinoni. Well, I appreciate it, Adam. And just at the beginning here, I want to say, well, it's obviously the Blackhawks instead of the Blues. But as a Chicago person. Well, that concludes our segment right there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. So here's the thing about the so-called contradiction in the creation stories from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. And a lot of people will read this the way fundamentalists read the Bible. It's just, okay, that's what the words on the page say, so that's what they mean. They don't, they don't take a look at the deeper meaning that the author is intending to convey, which I'll, I'll get into in a minute. But in Genesis 1, the, that's probably the most familiar creation story, you know, the, the six days of creation and on the seventh day God rests. And the general order is that uh, plants are created, you know, after the sun and moon and stars are created. Then when you get into the, the parts that are on earth, the plants are created, then the, the fish and, and the birds and then the, the animals on the land, and then man. Well, in Genesis 2, it starts, which, by the way, there's no chapters in the original writing. So just the first creation story leads almost directly into the second creation story. In Genesis 2, there's a story where it looks like Adam is created before the plants and the animals. So there's a, a difference in the order of creation, it seems like. But here's the thing. What you have to remember is that the writer of Genesis is not trying to give us a linear timeline for creation. And he's not trying to write a scientific treatise for creation. Okay, this is how it was done. This is why God did... No, basically what's going on here is you can look at it as, uh, for example, um, the first creation story, the six days of creation. Yes, as Catholics, we are allowed to believe in six 24-hour days of creation. But we're also allowed to believe that the six days of creation are merely um, a way that the writer showed us that time passed between each of these events. Between the sun and the moon being created, time passed. Between the, the oceans being created and the continents coming into view, time passed. From there until plants were created and then animals were created. Time, the passage of time is what the days represent. So keep that in mind, because, Adam, you know and I know, there, in, in the English language, there are what we call idioms of speech. You know, I might say something like, uh, it was raining cats and dogs last night. Well, some people, if that were in the Bible, some people would go, wow, cats and dogs were falling from the sky like rain, whereas actually... The intended meaning is it was raining really, really hard last night. Well, ancient Hebrew had its own idioms, own styles of speech and so forth. And that's what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2, is that Genesis 1, 
the point of it is that man is the pinnacle of creation, you know? And the seven days, a lot of people don't realize the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Israelites, were very big into numerology. And so if you look at day one and day four, there's a connection. You know, day one, the skies are created. Well, hang on, let me actually read. God said, let there be light. There's light and darkness, okay? And day four, you've got sun and moon. You know, then day two, you get the water and the land, you know, the water and the skies. Day five, you get the fish and the birds, the rulers of the water and the sky. Day three, you get the land. Day six, you get the animals on the land, the rulers of the land. So there's a connection between one and four, two and five, three and six. And guess what? The number three in ancient Hebrew signified connection. Then you've got the seven days of creation. Well, Seven in ancient Hebrew was the number that meant completion, and it also meant covenant. So is the author of Genesis possibly telling us that, well, this creation story is his way of showing that God created everything out of nothing, and that the creation was perfect, and it was complete, and it was a covenant God made between not just man and God, but all of creation and God. And then you go to the second story in Genesis chapter 2, and this is, well, God is showing us that, again, man is the pinnacle of creation. How do we know that? Because man, Adam, gets to name all of the animals. And this, this process of naming shows that Adam has authority over all of the animals. And so, again, with both stories... What the writer is showing, he's, he's giving us certain truths about creation. God created everything out of nothing. Um, the creation of the first woman from the first man. They were created in a state of innocence and so forth and so on. But in both stories, what's going on is the writer is showing us that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. And so there is no contradiction between the stories. They complement one another. And that's, you know, if you think there is, there's a contradiction, then what you have to conclude is that the writer of Genesis, yeah, Adam, I don't think he was very smart. I mean, why would you put one story after another if they contradicted each other and show from the very beginning of this book that you're saying is from God, that God contradicts himself? and that we don't really know what happened with creation at the beginning. You know, that would be a ridiculous thing to assume about the writer of Genesis. And so again, if you interpret Genesis 1 and 2 as a fundamentalist does, then yes, you've got a problem. But if you interpret it in a way that normal people interpret any book they read, they're trying to figure out what is the author trying to tell me, then you've got no contradiction. You've just got complimentary stories, not contradictory stories. It makes me think of bedtime with my kids and reading the stories to teach them a lesson. Some of the stories are true, some of the stories are fiction, and some of the stories are a blend of truth and fiction, but they're all to get that point across. And John, if I understand you correctly, that's what we're trying to do with these creation stories. The author of Genesis is trying to get this broader, bigger point across that God created some wonderful things. The pinnacle of that is man. 
And that's what we need to pay attention to. Well, John Martinoni, thank you so much for helping us understand this great rivalry, the contradiction of Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2. And friends, if you enjoyed this, for more from the Bible Christian Society, check out BibleChristianSociety.com. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven. We'll be back after this break. Stay tuned. Cataquiz question for you today, and it is this. Can you name the seven sorrows of Mary? Our catechist question today, can you name the seven sorrows of the Blessed Mother? And while you ponder that, I'll tell you that this past Friday in the traditional calendar, we celebrated the feast of the seven sorrows of the Blessed Virgin, which is one of those moving feasts traditionally falling on Friday of Passiontide. So for those of us in the new calendar, it would be the Friday before Palm Sunday. So the seven sorrows of our Blessed Mother include the prophecy of Simeon, the flight in, of the Holy Family into Egypt, the loss and finding of the child Jesus in the temple, Mary's meeting of Jesus on his way to Calvary, Mary's standing at the foot of the cross when our Lord was crucified, her holding Jesus when he was taken down from the cross, and then our Lord's burial. All of these in the prophecy of Simeon uh, said a sword would pierce our Blessed Mother's heart when these were fulfilled. Uh, now, here's one of those things. One of these sorrows, the holding of Jesus when he was taken down from the cross, is depicted in a famous work of art by Michelangelo, the Pieta, which, um, oddly enough, is the only work that Michelangelo ever signed. It's a, a wonderful statue made of Carrera marble located in St. Peter's in the Vatican. Um, but if you are at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis this week for the Chrism Mass or any of the Holy Week liturgies, they have a replica of the Pieta just outside the Blessed Sacrament Chapel where our Lord is reserved in the Blessed Sacrament. So there you have it. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven, and here we are in the holiest week of the year. In fact, a week so holy, it is the only one we refer to as Holy Week. And I am happy to have with us in studio today Patty Schneier. Patty, good to have you here with us. It's great to be with you on this Holy Week as we ponder some of the greatest mysteries, of course, of our faith, and uh, we want to enter into that more fully the best we can. I feel like we've been walking with you all throughout Lent during the Daily Dose of Encouragement, talking at the beginning of Lent on how to get ready for Lent and enter into the first days, talking about confession, talking about the Stations of the Cross for three weeks, the Holy Spirit, and and more. You know, all of these things as we've been getting ready. And, you know, in the midst of all of this, it's so easy to focus on the prayer, which we should. You know, this is first and foremost liturgical and prayerful, but it expresses a reality that is our salvation, and that is why it is liturgical and prayerful, because we were separated from God in a way that we could not restore the relationship. We could not repair the damage done through our own sin, and so our Lord steps in. God the Father sends his Son, who takes on our human nature and dies on a cross that we might have life, as we heard in the gospel yesterday on Palm Sunday. We focus on all of that. Sometimes I forget that, you know, the places where this happened are real places. This isn't just a story of what God would do, but this is actually what God did. And you can go to the Holy Land 
and visit these sites, which is something you have done. Yes, actually, we were blessed, my husband and I, to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land right before, uh, in 2020, right before shutdown, right before the pandemic hit. We got back the day before Ash Wednesday of that year. So um, we had an, an amazing, amazing pilgrimage. We went with a Theology of the Body Institute and Christopher West, and so we were reflecting on the physicality of everything. We were reflecting on how Christ experienced this in the flesh, and we were experiencing it in the flesh. It was an amazing experience. But I think especially during Holy Week, I go straight back to the places where we visited. And and there were some big takeaways in my life that I would like to share. The first was um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, there are olive trees there in the garden. There are trees. There's a church there now, but in that church, there's a big, huge rock, and it is um, lined or rimmed with iron, a huge, like a crown of thorns around it. And so you see this huge, you know, rock where perhaps our Lord, don't know if it was the rock, but it was in this garden. This was where it was. Um And you see that knowing that this is where he was praying so intently and his sweat turned to drops of blood. And then when it was at that church, at each of these holy sites, we would read different passages from sacred scripture. And I will never forget, it was there in the Garden of Gethsemane when we read from the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant, those chapters from chapter 50 through chapter 53, When we read, the Lord has given me a well-trained tongue that I might know how to speak to the weary, a word that will rouse them. Morning after morning, he opens my ear that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. My face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame." That's chapter 50. And then chapter 53, again, it's so worth repeating these beautiful scriptures to to let them sink in and realize how Jesus is fulfilling all of them during this week of Holy Week. Chapter 53 of Isaiah of the Suffering Servant. And think about this. This was written somewhere between 740 and 687 B.C., (laughs) that many years before Christ, and that here we are. If you think about the passion, and it says, he had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one whom you turn your face, spurn, and yet we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds, we were healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, all following our own way, but the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Though harshly treated, he submitted and did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter or a sheep silent before shearers. He did not open his mouth. Seized and condemned, he was taken away. Who would have thought any more of his destiny? For he was cut off from the land of the living, struck for the sins of his people. He was given a grave among the wicked, a burial place with evildoers, though he had done no wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Again, that's from Isaiah chapter 53, 1 through 9. 
it's so important for us to go back and reread these scriptures and picture this, how he is fulfilling all of it. Um, so I read those words at the Mass in the Garden of Gethsemane. Very powerful. We think about those words, and one of the other words I think about in Holy Week is the pit. And having sung the Psalms, having gone down into the pit, or he went down into the pit. And I, you know, it, it's easy to think metaphorically that this is very colorful language, the pit being the pit of hell. But when you go to the Holy Land, you realize, no, the pit is an actual place. It's a prison cell, and it is under the high priest Caiaphas, his house. And that has been excavated where you see it is underground. You go there and you are taken into the cell and it is a pit. It is, he is lowered and he would have been hung there in chains, his wrists from the ceiling. And it is dark. There is nothing but one hole in the ceiling. That again was a very, very powerful moving place for us as pilgrims to go into that pit and realize he spent Holy Thursday night into Good Friday morning. That's where they would have taken him. And there is Psalm 88 where it's saying, my God, my God, I cry aloud. Let my prayers come before you. My soul is filled with troubles. And it's all about, I am reckoned with those who go down to the pit. I am weak without strength. And and it's all about, you've plunged me into the bottom of the pit and into the darkness of the abyss. We read Psalm 88. Read Psalm 88 today and you and picture our Lord spending the night in this just stone prison cell alone, except with God. And, uh, and it makes you just, you just, you just want to weep. Um, only God was with him in that cell. And uh, of course, I think of people that are in a prison cell right now, a prison cell of addiction, a prison cell of a, of a real prison, a prison cell of loneliness, a prison cell of a hospital room, wherever it is. We are all, some of us, in prison cells. Our Lord descended into that pit for us, again, so that it wouldn't have the final word, so that he could crush it. And um, But he endured he endured so much for our sake. And when you go there and you go into that pit and see how dark it is, um, you, you just are so filled with, with thanksgiving for our Lord and gratitude for what he endured for our sake. Finally, we move on to a third place, and that is Calvary and the, the place of the crucifixion. And, you know, for years I always thought that, oh, this is a very special place because this is a place they prepared to take our Lord but at the time, the Romans would not have regarded him as our Lord, that Jesus literally walked to the place where if you were sentenced to death by crucifixion, you were going to go, and that this is an actual place. And we, we give it such esteem and honor now because of the significance of the crucifixion and the Paschal mystery, but how demoralizing that or humiliating that must be to be a prisoner on death row walking to the place of execution. And, and this is another powerful thing if you are ever able to go to the Holy Land um, to walk through the streets of Jerusalem, the Via Dolorosa, um, and you realize walking these streets, what that must have been like with people jeering and the soldiers beating you and carrying a cross. And, and so we walked it. We happened to walk it at like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. It was still dark. And then you get to what is now the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's a church there, and it's huge. It's massive. And I remember you you go up, and the whole thing, it's so funny, the whole pilgrimage, 
this was like the culmination of the pilgrimage. We are going to go to Calvary and what are we going to do? Well, you get down on your knees is the first thing you do because in order to touch Calvary, to touch the rock of Calvary, to touch the place, it's underneath an altar. So you have to get on your knees. You are going to crouch down, get on your knees, and then you're going to reach down and you're going to touch this stone. And at that moment, you realize I'm touching the place where our Lord, and, and again, you're in, this, you're in this church now, and we were able to celebrate Mass right next to it, right next to it. There is an altar there and celebrate Mass. And then we were able to just have like an hour to spend in silence and in prayer, do our own thing. And I remember just sitting. I just sat down. The place was empty. And I sat down in front of that altar where I had just reached down and touched Calvary. And I remember journaling because I wanted to capture this moment. But what it all came down to was there were no words. I just kept saying, I can't believe, what would I say to you, Lord, here at this place? And it came down to, I'm sorry for my sins. I love you, Jesus, and thank you for dying for me. That's all it came down to. I love you, I'm sorry, and thank you. Because there were no other words to say. And um, so it was a beautiful moment. I am thrilled that I got to go there and and see it for myself, walk the streets of Jerusalem and touch that stone. Um, and I remember in my heart, I just kept saying, I'm here, Lord, I'm here, Lord, I'm here, Lord. And yet then I had to realize, yeah, but I'm actually here at every mass. At every single mass, I am transported to this very place. And that's what I take away from the whole Holy Land pilgrimage is um, I am at the foot of the cross at every Mass. That's a really good reminder for us because the odds are that most of our listeners listening right now, in fact, I would say uh, if, if not all, certainly most, are not about to get on a plane and go to the Holy Land this Holy Week to visit these places. And yet we all have a chance to make a pilgrimage this week to go with our Lord through his way of the cross, through his passion and death, and into the joy of his resurrection. And as Monsignor Cronin said last week, I, I, I cannot stress this enough. And Patty, I know you're going to be sharing about this in the Daily Dose of Encouragement with us this week. This is a chance to really enter in. And the, the best way to begin that is through the liturgical prayer of the church. So if you are able to make it to daily Mass, you know, if, if you've missed your opportunity for today, then start tomorrow. But if you can still get to a daily Mass today, go today, go tomorrow, go on Spy Wednesday, go on Holy Thursday, go to the celebration of the Lord's Passion and the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday. If you've never been to the Easter Vigil or if you have been to the Easter Vigil, Go to the Easter Vigil and really make a spiritual pilgrimage since most of us aren't going to be able to get on a plane right now and fly to the Holy Land. Um, but what great reminders for us that these are actual events that happen to our Lord in actual places that you could go and see for yourself where our Lord walked. Patty, I want to thank you for uh, for being with us on the show today. And friends, we'll hear more from Patty in the Daily Dose of Encouragement. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven. Don't go anywhere. Well, Patty, this is a week we have all been waiting for throughout the season of Lent, Holy Week. And it is a week filled with many encouragements as we journey through it. What will our theme be this week here on the Daily Dose of Encouragement? Well, we are going to talk about Holy Week and ways to market, ways to make it special. 
I think it's so important for us in our world that is becoming ever more secularized. People go through their day, their work, and and their routine, and they don't even mark Holy Week. Maybe on Good Friday they might do something, but it's a whole week set aside for us to truly enter into our Lord's passion and his death. So today, we I want us to focus on what we just celebrated yesterday, Palm Sunday. And I want to encourage our families to display your palms. You know, sometimes you come home from church, and what do you do with those palms? Well, are you displaying them in a prominent place in your home, or even maybe even on your front door, you know, in between the, the if you have a little door knocker or something, you could put them in, or if it's a, you have a wreath or something, mark your home in some way with your palms. That's the first thing I want to encourage people to do, to have that visual reminder. And another thing I do, as I've told people how I decorate for Lent, when it's Holy Week, I take off the purple on my mantle and on my cross that's in front of my fireplace, and I drape it in red. I mean, I just went and got remnant fabric, red, but I drape it in red so that, again, we know we're in the liturgical color of red for Holy Week. The other thing, and this is such a small thing, but I think it's very important, we always are sending out texts and emails to our friends why not send out a text that says, blessing to you this Holy Week? Just to let people know we're thinking, we're praying that this is a different week. It's a special week or a, a big email out. Or if you're on Facebook, say something, blessings to everyone during this Holy Week. I hope this is a time of prayer for you or I'm thinking of you this Holy Week, especially for those members of our family who have left the faith. Let them remember that this is Holy Week, even they, though they may not that you send out a text or an email reminding people of where we are in our calendar year. This week is different. It's Holy Week. Let's think of some ways to mark it and make it special. I am getting ready to send a text to my friends right now. Patty, thank you for this daily dose of encouragement. So what's your plan, friends? That's the uh, the moral of the story at the end of the show today. What is your plan, uh, not just for attending Holy Week liturgies, but for making reparation, as we heard from Father Ripperger earlier today? We've got a lot of praying to do this week, so have a plan going into each and every day. I know for us, it's a busy week. The kids have school through Thursday. They have early release on Thursday, which gives us plenty of time Thursday afternoon to turn around and you know take care of feeding them so that we can go to the mass of the lord's supper observe that communion fast before going and you know whether or not we will go to seven altars of repose this year after the holy thursday mass of the lord's supper remains to be seen um, i'm hoping at least to take my oldest to and make that pilgrimage route that we have made before in our lives but it all starts with a plan, and that means, really, today, on Monday, sitting down for a few minutes, whether it's on your break at work or at home, perhaps with a cup of coffee, with a cup of tea, uh, before you eat dinner, after you eat dinner, and actually looking at what is your plan, where are you going to go, and when, and how long do you need to get there, and what do you need to do before you can go, or what do you need to do after. It's so easy to fall into the trap of, oh, I just don't have time for that, or I meant to do that, and then I had so much going on. Sometimes prioritizing things means working in advance. You know, I, I was talking with my butcher the other day about 
one of my favorite cuts of meat. And he says, Adam, the way you prepare that just takes so long. And I said, you're right, it does. But it's worth it because of the end result. It is worth it. It is worth all of the time of preparation because of the end result. Well, that's a worldly thing. How much better is it for us in the spiritual things to take that time in preparation? So let's do that today. Come up with your plan for Holy Week. Let's pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to thank Patty Schneier for being with us today, John Martinoni for calling in to talk about creation, and Father Chad Ribberger for allowing us to share his words today. On uh, Wednesday, we're going to take a, a close look at divine mercy. Why? Well, because the Divine Mercy Novena starts on Friday. Speaking of planning ahead, why is this important? Well, we'll take a a look at that and we'll begin to get into that on Wednesday. Until then, for Covenant Network, I'm Adam Wright. You've been listening to Roadmap to Heaven. Pray your rosary today.